This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.17, Fog Over Hickory, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm thinking that maybe next week we should distribute our podcast via Homing Pigeon instead of RSS feed. Oh shoot, there's a (laughs) name, no, there's a name for when you use like physical means to distribute information that you have on like a small drive or uh, like an electronic storage media, but you distribute it physically. And there's a special word for that. I want to say it's like sneaker or something. <laughs> and and yes, people have used pigeons. <laughs> uh, you know, like you have illicit mm-hmm. information of some kind and you don't want to distribute it via email or, or transfer yeah, over the like, internet. If you, were, if you were doing some sort of underground press distribution with information about Amuro Ray. You might keep the information on an electronic storage media. Like a zip disk. But distribute it by hand or pigeon. Imagine a pigeon carrying a zip disk. They totally can. Okay, I'll get to this later. Would it wear a little backpack or would it hold it in its claws? I'll get to that too. (laughs) In case you hadn't guessed, one of our research topics this week is pigeons. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and starting to think we need to analyze Zeta's use of elevators. Hmm. An awful lot of important conversations seem to happen in them. Hmm, I think you might be onto something. This week, pigeons, next week, elevators. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 248 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patron, Seth M. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. Another way to support the podcast is to buy us an item from our wish list. As you might imagine, there are a lot of reference books, magazines, and other research materials that we wish we had access to. Not to mention recording equipment, office supplies, and tea to keep our voices in tip-top shape. The link to the wish list is at the bottom of our homepage, GundamPodcast.com. We also have a few items that we want to order through specialty websites, and so we can't include them on the Amazon wish list. If you'd like to buy us some vintage anime magazines, or some of Tomino's books that are very difficult to find and have not been translated into English, please reach out to us directly via email or social media. Or just send us a mysterious Gundam-filled box. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, Episode 16, Through the Haze of Darkness, or Shiroi Yami o Nukete. Uh, Shiroi Yami is white shadow, white darkness, which I guess is a pretty good uh, term for mist. 
but it's not a term that showed up in the dictionary. We searched for shiroyami in the dictionary. It was like, I don't know what that is. It might be a turn of phrase they came up with entitling the episode. We think it's pretty great. Out of the white darkness. We also research planes and pigeons. But first, let's tune in to TNN for a reminder of what happened last week. This is a Titans News Network special report. Is Ayug all washed up, or just wet behind the ears? Earthnoids around the world have lived in terror of further attacks by nuclear-armed terrorist organization Ayug ever since their cowardly attack on the rainforest and the Federation government's Jaburo base. But it looks like there was nothing to worry about after all. Just take a look at this footage from last night's episode of Earth's Funniest Home Videos of an AUG mobile suit barely able to fly and nearly crashing its dodi into the waters of old San Francisco Bay. <laughs> you can practically feel the pilot's sheer terror. I haven't laughed so hard in years. Now just keep watching and... Ooh, it slips off the dodai and into the drink it goes. Let's rewind and see that again in slow motion. <laughs> I just can't imagine anything more embarrassing for the pilot. Actions like these could doom an entire unit. Maybe the next generation of Titan's mobile suit should be equipped with tactical banana peels. <laughs> <laughs> Although the video cuts off right after the appearance of a second Ayug mobile suit, TNN has it on good authority that Titan's forces attached to the legendary Blutark Brigade, who have already recaptured the main Ayug base at Kennedy Space Center, were present in the area, and they were no doubt quick to destroy the vulnerable Ayug mobile suits. The so-called Gundam Mark II, shown in the video, was developed by the Titans but discarded as unsuitable, and it was probably recovered from a junkyard by AUG scavengers. Titans Intelligence believes that the Mark II was piloted by young Camilla Byron, who was kidnapped from her home on Green Oasis and succumbed to Stockholm Syndrome after being radicalized by her captors. Camilla Byron is now considered to be one of AUG's best pilots, and I've got to tell you folks, if this is the best they've got, then I think we can all rest easy knowing that these terrorists will soon end up in a watery grave. I, for one, won't be sleeping in my panic room anymore. Next up, an exclusive TNN investigative report. Clean soldiers, dirty money. Has the procurement office of the regular Federation forces been wasting your tax dollars? Stocking warships with expensive luxury toiletries like Helen Helen soap? The answer may shock you. And now the recap for Through the Haze of Darkness. The Sidori flies through thick mists and receives a transmission with new orders. They are to pursue the Audumla as far as the Pacific Ocean, but no further. If it makes the crossing, they are to return to Kennedy. Blutark thinks their plan is to intercept the Audumla from the new Titan's base in New Guinea, 
but he isn't about to let some newcomer get all the credit for capturing the ship. He sends a message to the Murasame Nutype lab in Japan to be on the lookout, and uses the lab's encryption codes to hide his message from the rest of the Titans. Standing in an elevator on the Audumla, Amaro and Beltorchka discuss what comes next. She will lead them to Hickory, and they will get Quattro and Camille back to space. After all, that's Caraba's responsibility. But you don't like to fight, Amaro says to her. I hate war, Beltorchka corrects him, but that's different from fighting because you have to. Amaro asks if she despises him, and she doesn't, but she thinks that while the past seven years have been a time of necessary rest for his mind and body, it's time for him to wake up and bring back the way he was. But Amaro has no confidence in being able to be that person again. Beltorchka leans in and kisses him, and his eyes go wide with surprise. If you're just feeling pity for me, please forget it. Not at all, but if I can inspire you to action, I will. Is this some sort of test? he asks. Sure, is her matter-of-fact reply. How else am I to know if you're right for me? And if it turns out you're not, that's it. I don't have time for sympathy. Amro strides down the hall to Beltorchka and kisses her. We'll send Quattro and Camille back to space. They are standing there locked in a kiss when Quattro emerges from the bridge. When Beltorchka leaves for a meeting with Hayato, Amro asks Quattro if they can possibly leave a mobile suit behind for him to use on Earth. We can't leave the Mark II, Camille's too good with it. And the Rick Diaz is a proprietary Ayug design, there's no question of leaving it here. Besides, the final battle between the Titans and Ayug will be in space, why don't you join us there? Amuro claims he doesn't want to return to space because he's become scared of the feeling of no gravity. But Quattro doesn't believe that. It's that you don't want to encounter Lala, isn't it? Deep down, you think you'll see her. But there are some things a person has to do, things that are the best tribute to the ones we've lost. No, stop talking, Amaro blurts out, but he's already flashing back to that fateful battle, when Lala threw herself between the two of them, and the killing blow Amaro meant for Shar killed Lala instead. In the hangar, Camille and Katz are repairing water damage to the Mark II. When Quattro arrives to tell them he's gotten Hayato's permission, they will be taking Katz with them into space. Though a little sad that Hayato will be staying on Earth, Katz is thrilled. While the boys rush off to prepare for contact with Hickory, Quattro notices Amuro climbing into the cockpit of the Rick Diaz. The Auduma continues to fly above the thick white fog, with no sign of friend or foe. On the bridge, the navigation officer is concerned they won't be able to find Hickory, but Hayato is confident the Boltorchka will lead them. The messenger pigeon she brought takes news of their imminent arrival to Hickory, and the base stirs to action, lighting signal fires that mark the runway and taking defensive positions. Quattro invites Katz to make the descent with him in the Hyakushiki. Just as Katz has said yes, he sees Amuro at the foot of the Rick Diaz and changes his mind. He'll make the descent with Amuro. After offering to back her up during the descent, Amuro kisses Beltorchka and she rushes off to her biplane. Over the comms, Hayato says goodbye to Katz, telling him to behave, and asks Amaro and Quattro to look after his son. Almost the moment they've launched, Amaro senses the enemy nearby. Katz is surprised. They are thick in the fog now and can't see anything. Shouldn't we tell Lieutenant Quattro, he asks? 
If you want to go to space, be quiet, is Amaro's terse response. Beltorchka is first to spot the runway, with the shuttle right next to it. She lands, followed by the Mark II and the Hyakushiki. There is no sign of Amaro in the Rick Diaz, and Quattro thinks he must be lost in the fog. On arrival, he asks the officers at Hickory if they can load a third mobile suit onto the shuttle. But it seems they've already been contacted by the Argama, and their orders are to prioritize the return of the Hyakushiki. It must return to space at any cost. The Ashimar finds and fires on the Adumla, raising the alarm. Amuro emerges from the fog to fire on Blutark's squad, knocking a Hyzak from its dodai before disappearing back into the mist. Soon, the Rick Diaz is in a dogfight with the Ashimar. Keeping its distance to avoid giving away Hickory's location, the Adumla launches all its mobile suits, including some of them unmanned and on dodais, to serve as a distraction. At the base, there are less than five minutes until the shuttle must launch to make its rendezvous with the Argama, and only the Hyakushiki is loaded. Worrying that they might have to launch without cats, Camille ignores the order to load the Mark II and takes off in search of the Rick Diaz. Quattro tries to take off as well, but the Hyakushiki can't possibly be unloaded in time. Beltorchka finds herself caught in the crossfire between Amuro and Blutark's squad, and is saved when Amuro uses the Rick Diaz to shield her. She warns him that they are running out of time to get Katz to the shuttle, but Amaro refuses to give up. He will get Katz there in time. He pulls a handgun from his jacket and hands it to Katz. It is the gun he used in his final fight against Shar Aznabal in the One Year War. Katz tries to refuse, but Amaro insists. It could be useful. Landing at Hickory, he lets Katz out and tells Quattro to get Katz to space. Amaro will stay and defend the shuttle. Quattro is worried about Camille and wants to wait, but Katz pulls the handgun on him. He orders him into the shuttle, shaking with fear and adrenaline. You'd better go. I'm, I'm not used to guns. It might just go off, even if I don't mean it to. Quattro smiles and agrees to board, Katz trailing behind him. Once they are strapped into the shuttle, he casually mentions, guns won't fire with the safety on. Are you afraid? Quattro asks Katz. No, Katz replies. Well, I am. Waiting is much more frightening than doing something. In the fog, the lights that Camille thought were Beltorchka's plane are actually the Ashimar. It blasts his dodai out from under him before Amaro arrives to provide cover fire. Certain that Camille won't make it to the shuttle before launch, Amaro tells Camille to stay with him until he gets another chance to return to space. Camille assents and warns Amaro that the Ashimar is very dangerous. Camille cannot see or sense anything, but Amaro tells him where to aim and when to fire. Camille then jumps from the Dodai off to support the Adumla. He sees Amaro buzz by, severing the backpack of a Hyzak, disabling but not destroying it. Camille attempts this move himself on another Hyzak, but causes the entire mobile suit to explode when he hits the cockpit. The Ashimar returns, and Amaro and Camille keep fighting, but it manages to grab a hold of the Mark II. Camille is certain that this is it, and a vision of Fa flashes before his eyes, before the Rick Diaz flies by and slices off the Ashimar's sword hand. The shuttle launches safely, taking Quattro and Katz to space, just as Amaro puts a beam saber through the Ashimar's chest. Camille returns the Mark II to the Adumla, where Beltorchka wants to know if Amaro is alright. They are both surprised and impressed by Amaro's skill in battle, and Beltorchka admits she might have to change her opinion of him. The Rick Diaz arrives, airlifted by a Hickory helicopter, 
and Amuro returns to be greeted by a hug and tears from Beltorchka. While the Karaba officers look over new intelligence from Kai and plan their next move, Camille thinks about space and wonders how Fa is doing. You know, for a Titan, Buran Blutark really seems to hate the Titans. I don't know about hate the Titans, but we do get an interesting glimpse into perhaps the competitive nature of involvement there. Very factionalist. You know, we find out there is a new base in New Guinea, and Blutark is pretty angry at the idea of some young upstart getting the credit for capturing the Audumla that he has just been chasing across North America. We also see perhaps some interesting internal alliances because Blutark apparently has a very good working relationship with the new type labs. Presumably, this is why he got the Gaplant and Rosamia. To such an extent that rather than working with other Titans to keep an eye out for the Aldumla, he's asking a lab to do it. He's asking the Japan-based Murasame new type lab to keep an eye out. <laughs> what? It's really unkind of Blutark to drop so many intriguing hints about his personal agenda and his place in this Titans factional conflict and then go and get himself blown up. We will never find out what Blutark was really after. Probably. What is it with Gundam characters and eating really angrily? The way he eats that jerky. <laughs> the angriest jerky chewing. Just rip and tear. It's a relatively simple act that nonetheless conveys a ton of characterization. Like Blutark biting into and tearing off that piece of jerky gives off so much like machismo and power in a way that Merely taking a bite of a burger, like some effete cosmopolitan, like Bright, <laughs> doesn't convey the same message. Farewell, Blutark. You were not the most interesting bad guy. You weren't even the most interesting bad guy with a blonde pompadour and a sharp chin and chiseled good looks. You did, however, have the best eyebrows. So far. Are you promising me better eyebrows? In the 40-year history of Gundam, you'd better believe I am. <gasps> That's impressive. That's all I've got to say about Blutark. It's not much. <laughs> this isn't exactly Blutark related, but at the beginning of this episode, we see both the Titans and Ayug, Karaba, using some pretty antiquated messaging technology. The Titans uh, write a coded message, put it in a capsule, and shoot it out at the ground, where it releases a little bit of smoke so it can be found. And then Karaba uses carrier pigeons. Well, when you think about... The Minovsky particle interference. And the risk of being intercepted. To some degree, very old messaging techniques would be the best ones. Yeah, it's why in the early episodes of Zeta when they were still in space, if they needed to communicate a message, they used flares to do it. They're reliable. And even thinking about now and you know, computer technology and the way messages travel and are stored... If you had something really secret, the best way to convey it to another person would be to tell them in person and hope you're not recorded. Uh, but the next best way would be to write it down and then destroy whatever you wrote it on after they had consumed the information. Write it on a scrap of paper. Eat, eat the, the paper. <laughs> do not look at it. Consume the information like a piece of jerky.
What is Quattro's deal in this episode? In this episode or in his life? In all of Zeta? Do you have an answer that covers both of those? Possibly, but it's going to take me a little while to get there. I have okay, to build okay. up to it. So okay. bear with me. It's not a quick and easy answer. I'd like to start with some, I think, deliberate falsehood on his part. When Amuro asks that they leave a mobile suit behind, Quattro goes through this whole thing about, oh, well, we can't leave the Mark II because Camille's so good at it now. And the Rick Diaz is proprietary AU technology. We couldn't possibly leave that. When he already knows full well, because Bill Torchka told them, Hickory has a shuttle that can take two mobile suits. The plan has always been for them to only take two mobile suits. I think in theory they might be able to do three. There might be room in the shuttle for three. But you're right. Everybody except Quattro is in agreement that two mobile suits are going back up. And so I believe this is Quattro's initial attempt to goad Amaro into returning to space. He really wants Amaro back in space. Not just Amaro back in the mobile suit, which is what it seemed like he wanted last episode. He wants Amaro back in space. With him, where they first met. Where the quote-unquote real fighting will be. We then have yet another manipulative conversation, though I'm not certain to what extent there are also honest feelings at play there. Amuro attempts to say, like, oh, I, I guess I'm old and tied to Earth gravity now. The lack of gravity in space freaks me out. I don't want to go back. To which Quattro is like, you're just afraid to run into Lala again. And Amuro is clearly upset by Quattro bringing Lala up, and Quattro turns it into, there are some things that as a human being, living a life, you have to do. There are some things that are the best possible tribute we can give to those who have passed. And Amaro immediately starts having a flashback. And again, unclear if this is meant to be, hey, audience, remember what happened? Or if it's meant to be a trauma flashback, is Amaro experiencing that event over again. I think it has to be a traumatic flashback for Amuro. We've seen plenty of other times in Zeta when there have been references to things that happened in First Gundam, callbacks of one sort or another, and they do not get the 1979 animation treatment the way this one does. Everything's got a green filter over it, but it's the same animation from the original show. And it's not the whole fight, it's not the aftermath, it's not Amaro connecting with Lala, it's the worst possible moment. It's when the beam saber goes into the Elmeth, and then we see the water rising behind Amaro's eyes and engulfing him. Which of course begs the question, does Quattro feel any guilt over Lala's death? She died to save him, after all. Does Quattro feel any guilt over anything? Is Quattro's position that Amaro should feel bad and he's trying to guilt him, or is his position that Amaro shouldn't feel bad because he thinks that guilt is part of what's holding Amaro back? If I had to make a guess, I would say that Quattro's position is that Amaro should not feel bad. That Quattro believes Amaro's actions were justified in war, and that while it's regrettable that Lala died, that it was not, strictly speaking, Amaro's fault. Quattro has a weird relationship with grief. A couple of times now, like when he was talking to Camille about Lieutenant Roberto's death, his attitude is very much like, you gotta move on, you gotta just keep going. Don't stop and think about it. Don't stop and feel it. And so from Quattro, we get a sense that there is like something there to feel, but you don't have to let yourself feel it. If you just keep moving, then you can avoid it. But we know that when he left the Earth sphere, 
and got beyond Mars and couldn't feel Lala anymore, he came back. So it's not like he's completely shed any ties to her or any ties to the past. We also later learn something that he is afraid of. He's sitting in the shuttle with Katz and he says, are you afraid? And Katz is like, no. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, well, I am. I hate sitting here. Waiting is much worse than doing something. Which also explains a lot about him as a person, as a fighter. It's always action, 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 because to him, waiting is frightening. Not taking action is scary. And so what all of these bits, I think, illustrate about him in the episode and in the series, his ability to manipulate other people's emotions shows him to be pretty emotionally savvy and perceptive. He occasionally missteps like he does with Camille after Camille's parents' deaths. But for the most part, I think he's quite adept at Mm. that kind of emotional manipulation of the people around him. Mm -hmm. And related to that, we never know what he feels because to some degree he's laying on whatever feelings he thinks are appropriate to the manipulation he's currently engaged in. Right. I was going to say when he missteps, I think it's because he's misreading people. He gets the wrong impression of where Camille is, and so he presents the wrong persona to Camille, and that's what causes that clash. But I think it also interferes with his ability to connect with people. And as we will get into more when we talk about Katz and Camille, we have these two male figures in their lives now. We have Quattro and we have Amaro. And that lack of realness... (laughs) (laughs) I think seriously inhibits his ability to form any kind of a connection with these two young men. With the notable exception of that time Camille punched him, and I'm not even 100% certain about that, Quattro never seems to be affected by other people. Amaro is very much affected by other people. In this episode alone, both Beltorchka and Katz, I think, have a major impact on Amaro's feelings, his actions, his feelings about himself. Quattro, not so much. Quattro is always affecting other people, but he remains emotionally untouchable. The other thing that I noticed about him in this episode, but is, I think, a trend in his behavior, is we have frequently seen him encounter someone doing something they're not supposed to be and letting it go for reasons, (laughs) even though he absolutely doesn't have to. Mm Mm-hmm. He's just told Amaro that Amaro cannot have the Rick Diaz, and then he sees Amaro sneaking into the Rick Diaz cockpit, doesn't do or say a thing. Katz pulls the gun on him, and we learn that the safety has been on this whole time. Quattro could certainly have disarmed Katz, but he chooses not to. He goes along with the thing. When Katz got into the Mark II and took it, he didn't have to order the hangar opened, but he did. Well, and how many times did he let Camille take the Mark II? When he probably could have stopped him if he'd really wanted to. Or letting Wong Li beat Camille into unconsciousness. And the question is, why? Quattro, when he's not piloting, when he's not fighting, almost never takes initiative of any kind. Oh, see, I don't think this is about a lack of initiative. I think this is about encouraging warlike behavior in other people. Hmm... He's encouraging action. He's encouraging violence. Well, I think he probably sees it as encouraging action. 
But there's a reason I used the term warlike. That's the term Beltorchka uses for him. I think it's a pretty good characterization. Beltorchka has used that term both for him and in general many, many times. And I think at least in this episode, Beltorchka is working as a pretty effective mouthpiece for what the show really thinks about people. So that distinction between warlike and not warlike is very important. And those times that Quattro sees something and does nothing... I think are because he believes that whatever is happening is going to lead to warlike behaviors in the people involved. And to him, that is all to the good. That's, that is the sort of person he thinks these various people should be. So I really like that explanation. I'm on board for it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm digging it. But? I think Quattro is very reluctant to take command, to be in charge, to tell other people what to do outside of that very narrow field of active combat. And I think this is that same reluctance to be in command that Kai was chiding him for. Perhaps having lost his moorings, having lost the burning desire to avenge his family by destroying the Zabi clan, and then seeing Xeon itself defeated in the war, Quattro was left without a goal. He doesn't know what he should be moving towards. And so he's consciously not moving in any direction. Perhaps it's even more elemental. Look what happened to Quattro's father. Quattro's father was an important political leader and was assassinated for it. (laughs) You know, Quattro grew up in hiding because of it. Having dealt with that trauma, Quattro might be in that position that so many people are in, where he both loves his father, but also blames his father for what happened to his family and doesn't want to go down that same road, doesn't want to get married, doesn't want to have a family, doesn't want to be a politician, because he just recoils from anything that reminds him of his father. There's also the fact that once you take on a certain level of command, your job becomes mostly waiting and very little action. You know, he's admitted that that scares him, that he does not like it. Yeah. That for him, that's very frightening. And then when you think about command, you know, there's... Hayato on the bridge and his son is in one of these mobile suits that's in the middle of a pretty fierce battle and he can order out other mobile suits. He can give orders and instructions, but he can't go out there. He's in charge of an entire huge transport ship. How symbolic then that what Hayato is doing is sending out literally unmanned mobile suits. Refusing to take responsibility, refusing to take on command or leadership leaves Quattro at liberty to be more active, uh, to a certain degree more impulsive, more autonomous. He has fewer responsibilities to constrain his behavior. Freedom to act without taking responsibility for the effects of that action. Particularly how that action affects other people. He seems a bit like Driftwood, at the mercy of the currents of time. Also, oh my god, but... His comment to Hayato when Hayato says, like, look after my son is the most ominous thing I have ever heard. (laughs) I think being a father figure will prove to be a worthwhile experience for me. I'm totally thrilled to do so. Ha ha ha. The (laughs) He does the quattro chuckle. The completely humorless, performative ha ha ha. Right. It's like he is pretending to laugh for the other person. Yes. It both is like that and also I think is that. (laughs) Also Hayato, why would you trust Quattro to look after cats? Well, Quattro likes good pilots. 
He can't keep them alive for the life of him. Camille's doing all right. Camille's doing all right in spite of Quattro. He also leaves cats in Amro's charge, you will recall. Much better decision. They never interact in this episode, but I think there's something very interesting going on in the relationship between Quattro and Beltorchka. The most interaction we do get from them is Beltorchka telling Amro that she doesn't like Quattro, and Quattro repeatedly interrupting romantic scenes between Amro and Beltorchka and looking very put out by it. Perhaps Quattro feels the way Camille does. How can you think about a woman at a time like this? Even though it shows no adverse effects on Amro's <laughs> fighting skill. See, I think Quattro is just jealous of Beltorchka. Perhaps he is jealous of the influence she seems to be developing over Amaro. He wants to be having an influence over Amaro. And Beltorchka is just going to keep Amaro tied to Earth. She's not coming into space with them. Entirely possible. But it is significant that in this episode, Amaro and Beltorchka share three romantic scenes. When yeah. she first kisses him outside the elevator, when he goes to talk to her before launching in the Rictias, and when he's returned. The two of those that Quattro is there for both get interrupted by Quattro. And the second time it happens when Quattro and Katz stumble upon Amaro, it's right after Quattro has asked if Katz wants to ride down to Hickory with him, and Katz has said yes. Then as soon as they see Amaro and Beltorchka together, Quattro looks very unhappy, and Katz says, oh, I'll go down with Amaro instead. See, I interpreted his reaction there as looking unhappy because Katz has changed his mind. It's very, uh, what am I, chopped liver? I think it's connected, because I think it's the same feeling. Ugh, Katz prefers Amaro, and ugh, Amaro prefers Beltorchka. Um, Doesn't he know I'm blonde too? Amaro, Amaro, Amaro. He showed up and now nobody cares about me. Ugh, it's just like the last war. When am I ever going to get a war that goes my way? Can we talk for a moment about the fact that Amaro gives Katz the gun that he used to shoot at Char when he's handing Katz over to Char? <laughs> It's like a talisman. It's a reminder of like, don't ever trust that guy all the way. To some degree, I get this metaphorical, like this kid is my gun pointed at you kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah. Also, we watched those episodes pretty recently, so I can confirm he didn't shoot at Char with that gun. He shot Char with that gun. One gets the impression Quattro recognized it at some point. <laughs> like an old friend. He tells cats how important it is and to take good care of it. The other reason I think there's a connection between Quattro and Beltorchka is that the little biplane Beltorchka is flying is called the Comet. Beltorchka may be a stand-in for parts of the story that would have been fleshed out by Sela, who they wrote out because the voice actress was unavailable. So further connections to Quattro. I wonder if Quattro bringing up Lala in the elevator was meant to shame Amaro for moving on. Don't you remember that we shared this impossibly deep connection with this woman and then we both sort of killed her and now you're just smooching Beltorchka in a hallway? How dare you? Or also to make Amaro feel guilty before then saying the best possible tribute you could make to Lala is to help Ayug win this fight. You owe her. When they're descending to Hickory and they get attacked by Buran Blutark's force of Hyzax and Ashimar, Quattro can't sense the enemy, but Amaro does. He senses them before he's able to see them on his monitors. 
Katz and Camille, who we have also seen have little flashes here and there, also fail to sense the enemy. Amuro is on an entirely different level from everybody else in the show. And for all that Hayato was like, no, it's been seven years. You don't know what you're doing. He was on it. He was an absolute monster up there. He was the white devil come again, except in a red Rick Diaz. And the precision. To backtrack on Amuro a little bit, because it's significant to his later performance in the mobile suit in the fight, we have to talk about his conversation with Beltorchka. The elevator and um, smooches. Yeah, the conversation. The other <laughs> stuff is whatever. When he is stirred to action by her caresses. There are a couple of things happening here that are significant. One, as Tom pointed out, Beltorchka appears to be a pretty good proxy for what we are meant to think of a bunch of characters and certain events within the story. And so she's laying out some of the show's philosophy for us about as clearly and explicitly as ever happens in this kind of show. <laughs> and we have to take that all with a grain of salt and be very suspicious of it because it is so rare in Gundam, but I really do think she's doing that. And so we have fearful men, bad, warlike men, also bad. <laughs> that there is this theoretical sweet spot of being in a position where you really need to fight, of not liking war, of not desiring war, but of having the courage to fight when it's necessary. And we know that when Amuro takes the Rick Diaz, she sees that in him for the first time. At the end, when she's talking to Camille, she says, I guess I have to reevaluate my opinion of this Amuro guy. Well, she and Camille are basically thinking the same things and feeling the same things in that moment. Mm -hmm. Both of them had this sense of disappointment about Amaro, that they had expectations and those expectations were not fulfilled. And now they've seen him in action and he is everything they always heard that he was. When she talks about him at the beginning, she talks about him being asleep and how he needs to awaken. It seems now that he has awakened... And the question now is, what kind of person has he become in the seven years that have passed? I found Beltorchka's explanation there interesting, because on the one hand, I felt she was the first person to admit that Amuro had been through some stuff. He had had some experiences and he needed time to recuperate, that mm -hmm. his body and mind needed rest. That expression of understanding, that like affirmation of his suffering and his needs was hugely powerful for Amaro. I feel like that alone was a major factor in getting him back in the cockpit. However, she loses me when she then states that he needs to wake up because the implication is that he can somehow go back to being just as he was before. That's not true of any person, any time. <laughs> like, I can't be me from seven years ago. And that's without the trauma of fighting in a war. <laughs> I didn't think she meant go back to being the person you were seven years ago. I thought it was more like the time you've been spending at the mansion. Like, that's like hibernation and you need to emerge from it. But she has a line about something like bringing back the way he was. And perhaps that's a perception that... He was m more of a fighter. I'm not super clear on how well <laughs> uh, anyone's perception of Amuro the war hero jibes with Amuro's actual experience. I suspect it's not very much. Because it feels like she's asking him to become something that maybe he never was. So our fundamental disagreement here is, is she telling him to go back to his war hero self 
a self based off of stories she has heard about him that may or may not be reflected in who he is? Or is she simply telling him rest and recuperation time is over? Unfortunately, war is now. And then I got the sense from uh, when they're flirting, when she says, if a woman can rouse a man to action with like a simple caress, she'll do it, of course, just to see if he's suitable. And then if he's not, she'll drop him. There's no room for sympathy. She really says there's no time for that. Busy career woman of the future. If she figures out you're the wrong dude, she's not going to waste any time on you. So it seems like they're talking about romance and also about the situation they're in. There's some double entendre going on. On a meta level, this could be a commentary on the role of women characters in stories. Hmm. So women characters mm-hmm. are often used as a motivating force for male main characters. She's captured or she thinks you're a coward or someone attacked her and you have to get revenge or, or, or. And this essentially acknowledges that as, as fact. However, the position of this story is that in some cases, women are not simply pawns of circumstance. They are, in fact, knowing actors, or if we'd like to put a slightly more negative spin on it, manipulators of the situation because they are attempting to gauge the quality of the man in question. And taken as a whole with the rest of this episode, it does feel like Beltorchka is prompting Amaro to action, not knowing what kind of person he's going to be once he emerges from his slumber. Because we know she doesn't like fearful men. We know she doesn't like warlike men. It's only this third way that seems to be desirable. And that she doesn't pity him, regardless of what he's been through. She does not seem bothered by pity because he goes to kiss her after they talk about the fact that she's a war orphan. (laughs) And she says, yeah, if anybody should get sympathy, it's me. But she gets a very brief, very subtle quivering in her eyes when she's talking about her memories of the war. It's small enough that it might look like an accident if it weren't perfectly timed. There's a lot of interiority there. And despite the fact that we get a strong sense she wanted Amaro to go out and fight and is proud of him for doing so, the minute he's back, it's tears and hugs and, oh, Amaro, I was so worried about (laughs) you. He saved her bacon, too. He saved several bacons in that fight. Don't spit take. I didn't. I did not spit take. But it was a near thing. Several bacons. Small detail, but I loved Amro covering his mouth after uh, Quattro has interrupted him and Beltorchka making out in a hallway. <laughs> and uh, and he's talking to Quattro, and it's either embarrassment or he's worried that he's got lipstick all over his mouth and is uh, trying to cover that up. Beltorchka is wearing a bright pink lipstick. It's a pastel pink, but it's it's sort of shiny. We said earlier that Amaro was on a completely different level for this battle, but we should go into what we mean by that exactly. Not only can he sense the enemy coming when no one else can, but he spends the whole battle diving in and out of the clouds, firing off swarms of missiles and then disappearing again, taking out Hyzak's right and left, fighting on an equal footing with the Ashimard. He really makes the Rikdios fight like a completely different mobile suit compared to the other people we've seen using it in the past. 
his senses are so strong that not only is he guiding his own attacks, he's guiding Camille's at the same time. He's so good. Aim here. Shoot now. (laughs) (laughs) And this sort of diving in and out of the cloud bank fighting is so perfect for Amaro because he can sense the enemy. He doesn't need to see them, but they need to be able to see him and they can't. This episode has a very close relationship with the environment, the geography of it, in a way that a lot of episodes of Gundam don't. And it's used here to great effect to show just how good Amuro is. I have written down Amuro the Savior, because he does several times in this battle save people. He sticks a hand out to block gunfire that would have destroyed Beltorchka's little biplane. All due respect to Beltorchka for having the tremendous courage to be flying around in a biplane in the middle of a mobile suit fight. I don't think that was on purpose. Yeah, but she handled it like a champ. True. He also then saves Camille from pretty certain death by cutting the hand off of the Ashimar as he flies by. Amro's beam saber precision is on point. I don't think this was always the case, but certainly by the end of the series, I think probably by mid-series or so, Amro has demonstrated incredible control and precision. You know, we see him slice just the exact correct part off of a nuclear warhead to prevent it from detonating as it is flying through the air. And we see the same kind of precision here when he snicks the backpack off of a Hyzak, rendering the Hyzak no longer a threat, but not blowing it up, not killing anybody. Camille sees this nifty little trick and thinks to himself, oh, that's cool. I'm going to try that and fails miserably. So I think this goes a little bit beyond the way you've described it for Camille. I think this is like a revelation moment for Camille. Because he has been so uncomfortable having to kill people. He's gotten over it, but as recently as a few episodes ago, Camille really, really did not want to kill enemy pilots. But under Quattro's tutelage, he's gotten used to the idea. He has accepted that it's a necessity in order to survive. But Amuro just showed him it wasn't. Amuro just showed him another way, if you're good enough. And Camille immediately tries to replicate it. He's not good enough. He is not. But perhaps this will motivate him in a way that mirror survival never did. Because when he and Beltorchka are talking about Amuro at the end of the episode, and they're talking about that third kind of person, not warlike, but also not fearful, both of them say, you know, I really hope Amuro turns out to be a new type. Which is an odd thing to say, because if anybody's a new type, Amuro's a new type. We know that. We've seen that. But... In the context of that conversation, it sounds like the two of them are positioning new type as this elusive third way of being. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but there does seem to be a relationship. And since we brought her up already, consider Lala. Lala needed a cause to fight. We never get any indication that Lala loves fighting. She does it out of, out of necessity and out of this feeling of fighting for a person she cares about. And Amaro, when he met Lala, was in a similar kind of state. It had taken some development for him to get there, and I don't think he was entirely there, but he was closer than anybody else. He was certainly closer than Shar. And the connection that Lala and Amaro formed 
might have only been possible for the two of them because they were both so close to that ideal. Perhaps it was Char's warlike nature that prevented him from ever further developing as a new type. When they're on the Dodai together, Amuro mentions something about Belporchka, and Camille, thinking to himself, chides Amuro, like, how could you think of a woman at a time like this? When we were in the middle of battle. He thought about Ba. He did. I think Camille's criticism of Amuro here comes from Quattro. Because Quattro is very narrowly focused on what's in front of him, on the battle, on whatever you're doing. Forget everything else, forget your friends, forget the people who have recently died, and just keep moving straight forward. That has never been Amuro's approach. Amuro is very expansive in his thinking. He's always thinking about the consequences. He's always thinking about the other people on the battlefield, his friends back home. And it does not negatively impact his abilities. No. In fact, in this scene, Camille is so distracted criticizing Amuro for being distracted that he misses an opportunity and Amuro has to be like, Camille, now, shoot now. And at the end, when he returns to the Audumla, he's surrounded by friends. He's a part of the group. He's a part of Karaba in a way that Quattro never really has been, at least not that we've seen. He's always stood apart, like Camille at the end of the episode, alone, even among friends. Well, now that Quattro is gone, Camille is a spacenoid amongst Earthnoids. Now that Quattro is gone, Camille has a new mentor figure. What's that reality show where two people from different families swap? I think it's just called Wife Swap. So this is Mentee Swap? Mentor Swap. Who Who is doing the swapping? That's the question. Well, Katz has left Earth to go live in space with Quattro and learn how to do mobile suit piloting stuff from him. And Camille has stayed on Earth with Amaro to learn how to do respecting human life stuff with him. However, we know where their hearts really lie, and it's with Amaro. <laughs> Both of them, for now. Camille has begun to see Amaro in a much more positive light. Katz has seen Amaro in a much more positive light. The mere fact that Amaro was getting into the Rick Diaz was enough to make Katz go, mm, on second thought, I'll write down with Amaro <laughs> and not with you, Quattro. <laughs> Sorry, other dad. I like first dad better. He's more fun. I don't know. It's just less utterly terrifying. It was so cute when Katz is like, I heard that Mr. Bright is up in space on the Arkema, and I want to tell him about what a good mobile suit pilot you are. If they haven't seen each other since the war, Katz was six or seven the last time he saw Bright. <laughs> he was itty bitty, and his memories of Bright may be quite similar to his memories of Amuro, with the added benefit that the orphans were constantly under Bright's feet, and he frequently <laughs> lost his temper with them. So he's kind of an intimidating figure, probably. Oh, no doubt. Sim symbol of authority. <laughs> In their weird, abbreviated family structure, Bright would be like the grandfather. Kind, but very strict and a little scary. And Camille's like Katz's big brother. Yeah, I was very struck by how different and more positive the relationship between the two of them seems in this episode as opposed to the previous one. Now that the hierarchy between the two of them has been reaffirmed, Katz has been confirmed as solidly below Camille in the structure of this little Ayug Karaba alliance. It's become clear that he's not a threat to Camille's position. He's not there to replace Camille. 
Camille is the senpai. Katz is the kohai. These are Japanese terms that get used uh, particularly in clubs, especially sports clubs, to reference an older, more experienced student and a younger student and the relationship between the two. There is a lot of implied mutual responsibility there. And when they're drying out the mark too, and Katz is feeling so down on himself and he's afraid that this means now he's not going to get to go back to space, which is all he's wanted. And Camille's like, yeah, you're really messed up. Look at this thing. It's full of water, but it's going to be okay. We're We're going to get you back to space. And when Quattro comes to confirm that Hayato's given permission, Camille slaps him on the back and congratulates him. Camille is the one who says, oh, Katz isn't here yet and the shuttle's about to launch. I better go help. Mm -hmm. Even to the point where it costs Camille his own spot on that shuttle. And he takes it with a lot more maturity than I was expecting. And I credit some of that to being in this sort of senpai position and needing to be more mature and more responsible because there's someone underneath him now, but also to the fact that he's there with Amuro and he's getting Mm. to fight alongside Amuro. And Amuro tells him, like, you've missed your shot to go back now, but stick with me, kid, and we'll get you to space. And after seeing Amuro fight, he believes him. (laughs) After spending all of Zeta Gundam being told, you're just like Amuro. You, kid, you could be the next Amuro Ray." Hey, new type, you remind me of Amuro. To then get to Earth and encounter real, actual Amuro, and to find that he's a total disappointment, nothing like the Amuro Ray of the stories, has got to have been a bit of a shock to the system for Camille. That has got to have been a pretty rough first encounter. But now he gets to see that this guy that everybody was comparing him to is actually pretty cool. Wins the fights, gets the girl. Those are things Camille wants to do. He's not very good at them, but boy, does he want to do them. I love Camille's awkward running up for a handshake while Amaro <laughs> is still embracing Biltorchka. <laughs> <laughs> Who among us has not done something like that? None. Anyone who says they have never done anything awkward like that is probably lying. I mentioned them letting the water out of the Mark II earlier. And at first I noticed that because it's a neat little trick where they cut directly from Amuro's flashback to the Lala fight, where we see water filling the screen behind his eyes until he's completely immersed in it. And then they cut directly from that to the scene of the water being let out of the Mark II Gundam, which is a pretty cool little bit of cinematography, but it didn't really seem like it meant much, except that water keeps coming up in this episode. Besides the Lala bit and the Mark II bit, Hickory is on the coast. A lot of the battle happens over water. When they destroy the Ashimar, we get this long, unbelievably beautiful scene of the Ashimar exploding, but it's right above the water, so there's waves coming up and crashing over. It looks like something out of classical art, like Hokusai's The Great Wave off Kanagawa, or something like that. And then the episode ends with the Rick Dias falling into the water and needing to be retrieved, and it's being moved back into the Aldumla, dripping water. Water is a through line connecting everything in this episode, and it feels very important. This doesn't necessarily fit with every appearance of water in the episode, but starting from the water imagery around Lala's death, the water seems to symbolize hidden emotion, Because when Amuro kills Lala by accident, 
He is immediately overwhelmed with feelings of grief and loss and regret. We see the water physically rising and crashing over a still of his face. When Katz grabs the Mark II and takes it out, he's driven by emotion. It's not a logical or sensible thing to do. And now here the Mark II is leaking water everywhere. <laughs> Which is bad. That's bad for fighting. <laughs> to be leaking your feelings all over the place does not good fighting make. <laughs> and one thing you didn't mention previously, but what is fog but a bunch of water suspended in the air? Hmm. I hadn't even thought of that. And Amaro is someone who, you know, can be overwhelmed by that emotion, but can also use it to fuel him, can use it to his benefit. You know, Amaro is not hurt by the fog in the same way that Camille is, where Camille, you know, mistakenly thinks, oh, there's Beltorchka in the comet, and instead it's the Ashimar. You know, the two people in this episode who are not blinded by the fog are Amaro and Beltorchka. Everyone else from Ayug needs Beltorchka to guide them down to Hickory. Quattro is blinded by it, Camille is blinded by it, but Amaro? Even Amaro needs help finding Hickory, and it's Beltorchka who helps him. So Beltorchka is providing a little emotional clarity for everybody. But Amaro is able to move in and out of the fog, move through it, he's dance in it once the battle starts. He's able to use it. Everyone else is just affected by it. Amaro is able to use it. I've been thinking and thinking about how that idea of the water symbolism fits into that last scene. But I think it actually works. There are deaths in the show that happen and we don't even have time to feel them. They happen and they're gone just as quickly. But that's not true of Blutark's death. Blutark was about to kill Camille. Camille thought he was a goner. Camille even had a little like flash of fa. And Amaro arrives just in the nick of time. And even though he has incapacitated the Ashimar by cutting off its sword hand, he comes back and he takes out the machine. This is not an instance where he's going to try to leave that pilot alive. And he doesn't just take out the machine, he takes out the cockpit, specifically. And Blutark is clearly stunned, you know, in his last moment, what he can't believe is that the Ashimar has been defeated. That the seemingly indestructible mobile suit that has withstood so much has been taken out. And that's a lot of emotion for those three people to be experiencing in that moment. Through Blutark's disbelief, Camille's acceptance of death and then not actually dying, and Amaro's deliberate decision to kill someone. And so we have those big waves. Don't quote me on this because I would have to do a little bit of research to back it up, but if what I remember about dream interpretation is correct, water is associated with the subconscious. And we've talked before about how Tomino seems interested in Jungian psychology, a lot of Jungian psychology deals in dream analysis. It's not too far a stretch to say that he would use symbols that relate to Jungian dream analysis. I buy it. I think that's a very strong read. I have a slightly different read. Go on. I think the water in this episode represents a kind of spiritual pollution that attaches to somebody when they fight and kill. It overwhelms Amaro when he kills Lala. Katz fought for the first time in the previous episode, and the water stuck inside the Mark II 
is the result of that battle. And like you said, at the end, when Amuro destroys the Ashimar, he's chosen to take a life. And then he ends up falling into the water and being partially submerged. Not completely. He's not drowning again, but he's back in it. And the fog, all of Hickory is shrouded in this fog of battle. Hickory is even on the coast. It is the dividing line between the state Amuro has been in before, where he was passive, inactive, asleep, resting, and pure, untainted by the corruption of battle. But on the other side of Hickory is the water. And by the end of the episode, Amuro is in it. And I don't think the water here is positioned as necessarily bad, per se. It's not sin, it's not a mistake or a crime, but it's a kind of spiritual pollution that clings to you when you fight. And sometimes you have to. I can see that read. It would be highly unconventional for seemingly clear water to be that kind of symbol. I don't think it's an unreasonable interpretation. They're not even necessarily counter-interpretations. Most of the feelings that I think the water represents in this episode are feelings people have about fighting and killing. <laughs> so, And I'll say this. I don't think it would be inconsistent with what we have seen from him to use a symbol like water not to represent cleansing, but instead pollution. I think Tomino likes to mess with your expectations. Our research this week covers airplanes and pigeons. Was Tomino going through a planes phase in the mid-80s? Or is this an overcorrection because he's still embarrassed that the Dop and Lagoon were nonsense planes that would never ever have been built by any sensible army? I don't want to belabor the point about the first Gundam planes too much, but so far in Zeta we have seen four types of airplane, and aside from the oversized Garuda transport, they have all been real-world planes. Back in episode 2.14, I talked about Hayato's supersonic Valkyrie bomber. Now, we have seen Beltorchka twice pilot a bright blue biplane, and Amuro briefly flew a weird, bug-eyed-looking little craft at the beginning of episode 13, Shuttle Launch. Beltorchka's biplane, painted in a kind of Crowley Haman or Goof Blue, is called variously the Comet and the Beechcraft during the show. Besides the names and the color, the biplane's most distinctive feature is the positioning of its wings. If you pay careful attention, you will notice that the lower wing is positioned somewhat forward of the upper wing. In the parlance of aircraft design, this is called negative wing stagger, and it's quite rare indeed. Positive stagger, where the upper wing is forward of the lower wing, is actually much more common. Conveniently for our purposes, the real-world aircraft manufacturer Beach Aircraft Corporation started producing a line of Beechcraft planes in 1932, and they only ever built one biplane with negative wing stagger, the Beechcraft Model 17 Stagger Wing. The Stagger Wing is the spitting image of Beltorchka's biplane. It was designed as a high-performance luxury plane for business executives, and filled a role similar to that of the modern private jet. The first Model 17s were produced in 1933, and the last were built in 1948. It is now regarded as one of the most beautiful planes of all time, at once strong and graceful. Plane and pilot called it the inarguable icon of classic aircraft. 
But when it initially launched, the Staggerwing actually struggled desperately to find purchasers. Was the middle of the Great Depression the wrong time to launch a private plane for business executives with a cabin trimmed in leather and mohair? I feel like they must have had a very similar feeling to the people who were building like luxury condos in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> How could I have known <laughs> that by the time my project was finished, no one would want it? They started after the Great Depression began, but maybe they thought it would just be a little depression. So the luxury Model 17 Staggerwing is not the direction I would have gone, but I suppose that is why I am a podcaster and not an aircraft manufacturing executive. Because the Model 17 Staggerwing eventually turned the corner and became both commercially successful and beloved. Of the 785 total Model 17s that were built during its 15-year production history, the redesigned D-17 model accounted for more than 500, and more than 400 of those were built specifically as military planes. Stagger wings were used as bombers by the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War, by the Dutch royal family for refugee-related tasks after the German invasion of the Netherlands, and as ambulance planes by the Chinese forces fighting the Japanese invasion. The United States and Britain both used stagger wings extensively during the war for light personnel transport and as air messengers. Model 17 stagger wings remained in service until 1958 in the air forces of Cuba, Finland, Honduras, and Peru, until 1960 in Brazil, and until 1962 in Uruguay. But if Beltorchka's plane is a Beechcraft Model 17 stagger wing, and it is a Beechcraft Model 17 Staggerwing. Why is it also called the Comet? There are, I think, two possible explanations, and three if you count it just sounded cool, it doesn't mean anything, geez, stop overanalyzing Gundam already. But I'm not going to accept that, so here we go. <laughs> As we sort of hinted at in the talkback, the name Comet suggests a connection between Char, the Red Comet, and Beltorchka, piloting the Blue Comet. This is a connection that would make a lot more sense if, in fact, Beltorchka is here as a kind of last-minute replacement for an unavailable Salem ass. But once I started looking into the Beechcraft Model 17, another possible origin for the comet name occurred to me, and I've got to say that at this point I am pretty much convinced this is the real origin. The plane Beltorchka is flying is explicitly a reproduction model, right? It wasn't actually built in the first half of the 20th century CE and preserved until UC87. Comet might be the name of the company manufacturing these biplane reproductions. And Comet would make a lot of sense as the name for a company making copies of old aircraft. Because from 1929 to 1948, the Comet Model Airplane and Supply Company was one of the premier model airplane makers in the world. In the 40s, they were hired by the US military to make model aircraft for training, both to aid spotters in identifying friendly versus enemy planes, and for target shooting practice. Despite ownership and name changes and declining business after 1948, you could still buy a Comet model airplane kit up into the mid-90s. And vintage kits remain sought after collectibles today. I think we can be fairly confident at this point that someone high up on Zeta Gundam's planning staff was a serious aircraft enthusiast. What do you think the chances are that that person had a beloved balsa wood model of the Beechcraft Model 17 Staggerwing, manufactured by the Comet Model Airplane and Supply Company, sitting on their desk when they first sketched out Beltorchka's biplane? I think it's highly likely that several people involved in the making of Zeta had at one point in time had Comet model planes. 
As for Amaro's plane, I have to admit that when I first saw the bulbous, almost all-glass cockpit, the twin booms and fins, and the ducted pusher-style propeller behind the cockpit, it looked like a design straight out of science fiction. It was one of our patrons, Martin, who pointed out that it's actually an almost perfect match for the real, actual Edgley Optica, a rare but iconic small plane developed in the late 1970s. The Optica was designed as the solution to one of modern aviation's most persistent annoyances. Helicopters are kind of bad, actually. Compared to fixed-wing aircraft, helicopters are expensive to build, expensive to maintain, hard to fly, obnoxiously loud, fuel-hungry, and they break all the time. But if you need to be able to fly slowly with good ground visibility, you know, the requirements for an observation mission, then helicopters are pretty much the only way to go. Unless someone figured out how to build a cheaper, fixed-wing airplane that could do all of those same things. In the mid-1970s, John Edgeley, a postgraduate student at the Imperial College of Science and Technology in London, designed and prototyped a small fixed-wing airplane that could fly slowly and had a unique cockpit design that gave its three occupants panoramic 270-degree visibility and a view of the ground comparable to that of a helicopter. As a bonus, it also offered better fuel efficiency and range, and might be the world's quietest powered aircraft. Sounds like the only downside vis-a-vis -vis helicopters is how much space does it need to land and take off? Somewhat more. <laughs> it's still a small plane, though, so not a ton. Named the Edgley Optica, it flew for the first time in December 1979, and the first production models were ready by August 1984. At the time, it was estimated to cost about one-fifth as much as a comparable helicopter. As you might imagine, interest in this odd-looking plane was both strong and immediate. But in May 1985, the very first production model of the Optica, on its very first evaluation flight by the Hampshire Constabulary, a mere one day after the constabulary accepted delivery of the plane, and just 17 days before the plane made its appearance in Zeta Gundam's episode 13, the Optica banked hard, lost control, and spiraled downward, crashing into a forest and killing both of its occupants. The inquest into the crash ultimately proved inconclusive, and no particular blame was assigned to the Optica. But by then, the bloom was off the rose, so to speak. The orders slowed down, the company went into receivership, and Edgley himself was forced out. In all, 22 Opticas were built, but eight of those were destroyed by arson at the Optica manufacturing plant. Of the remaining 14, it seems that only eight or nine survive today. The design for the Optica passed from company to company, going into and out of bankruptcy, and just sort of sitting around until 2008, when John Edgeley got control of them once again and began looking for partners to put his baby back into production. And as of this writing, he's still working on that. When Zeta was being made and Amaro's Optica was being drawn, no one could have imagined that the exciting new plane was about to endure several cursed decades, as it faded into aviation obscurity. But even though it couldn't possibly have been intentional, I think that Zeta offers us a hopeful take on the Optica. You see, as I said at the start, Amaro's plane is only an almost perfect match for the Optica. All the iconic bits are there, so it really is unmistakably an Optica, it can't be anything else, but 
The difference lies in the wings. The wings on Amuro's plane are tapered, so they're narrower toward the end than they are at the base. And they are sharply dihedral. That means the wing is shaped a bit like a V if viewed from the front, so that the ends of the wing are higher than the base where the wing joins the body of the aircraft. And they have dihedral tips, meaning that the tips of the wing are angled even further up relative to the rest of the wing. If you can't quite picture what I'm talking about just from my description, check the show notes where we will link to pictures. The existing Optica's wings are dihedral, but at a much shallower angle than on Amaro's. They also aren't tapered, and they don't have the upward-pointing tips. That means that Amaro's Optica is not one of the handful of surviving ones. It has to be a new model. And that means that in the canonical history of the Universal Century, John Edgeley was eventually able to find someone to manufacture his Optica again. A homing pigeon, brought by Beltorchka, carries a message from the Audumla to Hickory. Aside from the fact that this fits nicely with her whole anachronistic thing, she's flying a (laughs) biplane after all, it's not hard for us to imagine that even with all the future technology of the Universal Century, there could be a role for pigeons to play in wartime communications. It turns out this would be part of a long and illustrious history. But first, a clarification of terms. This is a discussion of homing or messenger pigeons. These terms are often used interchangeably. We are not talking about the passenger pigeon, which is a species that was once endemic to North America but is now extinct. Thanks, humans. Was it delicious or annoying? Mostly delicious. Uh, Also, to habitat loss. Nuts. This is also not a discussion of the English carrier pigeon which is a breed of fancy pigeon, the old type having been bred to carry messages, but the new type kept purely as a show pigeon. That's right, show pigeon. I, I really want a Christopher Guest best in show style mockumentary about show pigeon pigeons. Shows. <laughs> Modern homing pigeons were bred from numerous other types of pigeon, including the English carrier. Encyclopedia Britannica uses carrier pigeon and homing pigeon as synonyms, I don't know if this is strictly incorrect or a difference in terminology, perhaps between American English and British English. Most homing pigeons are a breed called the racing homer, selectively bred for speed and stronger homing instinct. I have to tell you which pigeon breeds it was bred from because the names are amazing. In addition to the English carrier, they were bred from Smurl, French Cumulet, Dragoon, and the Horseman. Smurl? Yep. S-M-E-R-L-E. Smurl is a Gundam name. Competitive racing pigeons have been recorded traveling distances as far as 1,100 miles, which is about 1,800 kilometers. A moderate distance for a homing pigeon is 600 miles, or 965 kilometers. And over that distance, their average speed is 60 miles an hour or 97 kilometers per hour. That's like highway speed in a car. (laughs) If you released a pigeon and you tried to race it in your car, chances are it would beat you. At shorter distances, top racing pigeons have been clocked at speeds up to 100 miles an hour, or 180 kilometers per hour. A trained homing pigeon can carry as much as two and a half ounces, 
or 75 grams on their backs. They make them a little backpack. For lighter weight messages, there's a little canister that they attach to the leg. 2.5 ounces is about the weight of a C battery, which is pretty impressive when you remember how light birds are. Just as in the episode, the weight of a pigeon returning to its perch would set off an alarm or bell so that someone would know to come retrieve the message. That's very clever. I'm glad that's a real thing. There are many theories about how homing pigeons manage to find their way home from distant and unfamiliar locations, the most popular of which is that they're able to use the Earth's magnetic field, but the fact is, we don't know. The position of the sun seems to matter, as do visual landmarks and possibly gravitational anomalies. Some breeds are more sensitive to certain stimuli than others. It's clearly a complex system, and no one as yet has been able to prove how it works. Yeah, because they wouldn't properly fund Skinner's pigeon research. He was this close to cracking the code. To work as messengers, pigeons have to be taken from their home roost to another location, and will only fly back to their home roost. There are humorous stories of fancy pigeons sold or given away who consistently return to the original owner's home. <laughs> By having the pigeon roost in one location and feed in another, pigeons have been trained to fly back and forth between two locations as well. There are records of flying homing pigeons for sport from up to 3,000 years ago. In the time since, they've been used to announce the winner of the ancient Olympic Games, to notify Rome of the conquest of Gaul, to provide regular message service between Baghdad and Syria in the 12th century, and to equip the watchtowers of the Republic of Genoa. Olga of Kiev used pigeons to burn an enemy city she was besieging, which is a pretty wild story. <laughs> I will link to it in the show notes. They were used by Genghis Khan, by the Mughal Empire, and in Dutch colonial Indonesia. The first news of how the Battle of Waterloo had turned out was delivered to England by pigeon. In 1860, the founder of Reuters news agency, Paul Reuter, used a fleet of 45 pigeons to send news from Brussels to the telegraph terminus in Aachen. And on and on. Too many stories to count. Although I will finish with a few stories of pigeon heroics from World Wars I and II. The point is that messenger pigeons have been reared and used by humans from many different parts of the world and over a period of thousands of years. I'm beginning to understand Skinner's obsession. Homing pigeons are remarkably reliable and have been used for regular post. In 1897, the Great Barrier Pigeongram Service carried mail between Auckland, New Zealand and Great Barrier Island. This may have been the first regular airmail service in the world. Homing pigeons have also been used to transport lab specimens between hospitals in tiny breakproof vials and to deliver medications. There were pigeon post systems in Paris and on Catalina Island off the coast of California, and there's some evidence that homing pigeons' abilities have been put to use smuggling small items of contraband into prison. One source mentions this happening in Brazil specifically as recently as 2015, but given the long history of both homing pigeons and prisons, it seems unlikely this is the first time that's <laughs> happened. Pigeons were used extensively in war before the advent of radio communications and continued to be used after for times when the risk of information being intercepted was too great. Pigeons had a risky job. Enemy soldiers knew they were likely to be carrying important information and tried to shoot them down. In World War II, the German army trained hawks to attack pigeons as well. Sometimes they were paradropped with and without a paratrooper and could be injured on landing. The ones that served in tanks during World War I were often disoriented by gasoline fumes. 
And these risks don't include the natural ones, like rough weather or predators. Tom is making a sad face. Tanker pigeons. Yep. During World War I, many tank crews, if they wanted to attempt radio contact, someone had to leave the tank to do that. They couldn't do it from inside the tank. But they had a tiny little porthole, and they could release a pigeon out this tiny little porthole to send a message instead. Mobile Suit Breakdown salutes our feathered heroes. Pigeons received a number of medals for their service, including the Croix de Guerre, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, and the Dickin Medal, which is awarded to any animal displaying conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, and is sometimes called the Animal's Victoria Cross. Of the 53 Dickin Medals presented during World War II, 32 went to pigeons. One of our sources, the webpage of the Royal Pigeon Racing Association, gives the full list of Pigeon Dickin Medal recipients with their name, breeder, photo, and explanation of why they were awarded the medal. Many of these pigeons have their own Wikipedia pages, and several articles that I will link to in the show notes include pictures of mobile pigeon lofts, which were often repurposed train cars or buses, photographs of original messages, and other great primary photography of war pigeons. In World War I, a pigeon named Cher Ami saved the so-called Lost Battalion from friendly fire. They had been encircled by German forces for days, and American artillery, attempting to fire on the German forces, were firing on their own men instead. The besieged battalion had no way to reach the artillery forces except for a single pigeon. She flew through the artillery barrage in a hail of gunfire, losing a leg and one eye, before arriving with the message that stopped the shelling. In World War II, an RAF bomber was hit by enemy fire and crash-landed in the North Sea. Unable to radio an accurate position to base and struggling in the freezing water, they released their pigeon Winky. Winky arrived home after traveling 120 miles, exhausted and covered in oil. But even though Winky carried no message, the base was able to home in on the downed plane's position based on the time difference between the plane ditching, which would include their last radio contact, and the bird's arrival, taking into account wind direction and speed and even the effect of oil on Winky's feathers. The crew were rescued just 15 minutes after Winky's arrival. In a similar story, a bird named White Vision led to the rescue of the crew of a Catalina flying boat that had ditched in the Outer Hebrides. Search by sea was impossible due to bad weather, and a thick mist made air search impossible too. But despite a visibility of only 100 yards at the departure point, and only 300 yards at the point of arrival, not to mention 25 mile an hour headwinds, White Vision made it the 60 miles to base with a message containing the crew's location, and they were all rescued. During the Italian campaign, a pigeon named G.I. Joe saved a village and a British infantry division. The division had recaptured the village in question from the Germans somewhat ahead of schedule, but they had already requested air support. Unable to get through by radio, they released G.I. Joe in a last-ditch effort to call off the air raid. He flew 20 miles in only 20 minutes, arriving just as the planes were preparing to depart and saving as many as 1,000 soldiers from being bombarded by their own allies. <laughs> Tom can't get wow. over how cool these pigeons are. Uh. A pigeon named Commando flew over 90 missions, most of them in and out of occupied France. He carried messages containing crucial intelligence about the location of German troops, industrial sites, and injured British soldiers. And finally, a pigeon named Mary of Exeter, who also flew missions between France and England, and was injured three times in the line of duty. First, she was attacked by German-kept hawks near Calais. 
On another occasion, the tip of one of her wings was shot off and she took three pellets. And finally, she was badly injured by shrapnel. Her neck muscles were permanently damaged and her keepers had to make her a special neck brace. She was taken out of service, but was almost killed a fourth time when her loft was damaged during the Luftwaffe's 1942 raid on Exeter. Leave Mary alone. And these are just a few of the numerous stories. I don't know a lot about animal intelligence. I don't necessarily think these pigeons knew that they were saving people. But I don't think that changes that their lives were in danger and their actions did save a great many people. So tonight, drink a toast to our feathered heroes of days of yore. I also have to confess, previously when I'd heard of people keeping pigeons, I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand what the appeal would be. After reading so much about pigeons and how amazing they are, I'm like, okay, I get it now. I can understand (laughs) wanting to have pigeons. Next time on episode 2.18, Gateway to the Stars, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 17 and... Are we going to have to talk about current events again? Placeholders. For Murasame. New Hong Kong? Knees are highly effective weapons. Oh ho ho Jo-sama. Blue hair don't care. Hathaway? As in Hathaway's flash? No. Chaperones. Absent fathers and what Earth's gravity really means. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or just shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Beltorchka should have chosen Quattro instead. Blondes belong with blondes on any busy street corner. We will totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. That's a good idea, giving a kitten a waffle. I mean, I believe you, but I don't believe you because you're lying. You're just lying to make me feel better, which I do appreciate. (laughs) When they want to like release white doves for something, they just get white pigeons. Presumably white pigeons are easier to come by. Wait, is that why we don't have world peace? 
Because everybody they keep keeps releasing pea stuffs, but it's actually pigeons? Maybe. <gasps> the shadowy elites really don't want there to be world peace. A bright blue biplane. So many good burbs. They're such good burbs. Amaro, Amaro, Amaro. Brum, brum. <laughs> He saved several bacon in the, <laughs> several bacons. <laughs> Please keep that. Please keep. He saved several bacons. <laughs> I really want that in the final it, cut. It'll of the go episode. in. It's astonishing how many of the euphemisms for bravery have to do with testicles. Right. <laughs> Literary symbolism. <laughs> Pixar. Pixar, make a movie about the pigeons. Mm. 